Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, if you have a Bible in front of you, or maybe one of our Ephesians journals. Uh, if you didn't get one of those, there's still time. We'd love to put one in your hands. If you're just joining us, uh, maybe for the first Sunday, you might not even know we were studying Ephesians. We're about halfway through, so uh, you may want to go back and catch some of those other messages. Uh, essentially, by going back and watching the earlier services, it'll be just like being here. It was the same for all of us. We just watched it on TV, you know? Uh, but we are picking up in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning in our continuing study, and there's a pivot point for us here. We, we anticipated it when we started the book, and now that we get halfway through, it's important for us to reemphasize it. So we, we said when we, when we began that what Paul, the writer here uh, to the church at Ephesus and other churches in that region, uh, what he's trying to do essentially is to stir a sense of awe in his readers and in his listeners. He's trying to stir them with an, with an overwhelming view of who God is, who they were, and yet who they have become because of the work of Christ on their behalf, and then who God has made them to be in togetherness. So we've seen in this text that he's stirring people to awe, but remember, belief uh, always is a way in which to proceed or to provoke behavior or action. Uh, we said when we began the study that he was going to try and stir awe in the first half of the book so that then he could give us practical instruction about what our lives should look like in response to what we have learned. So uh, this happens all the time in our lives. It's, it's everything we do at some level is based on what we believe. Everything we do at some level is based on what we believe. And we know that even living in the world in which we are today, you can see there are a variety of different responses uh, to what's happening in our world and what's happening in our city. And those different responses are based on the different way that people believe. Kids, uh, if you've ever been in the car with your parents, your dad's driving down the freeway at like 75 or 80 miles an hour, he's heading somewhere quick, and then all of a sudden he slams on the brakes even though there's no cars in front of him, even though uh, there's no obstacle to be swerved around, and you've, you've thought for a moment, like, why did dad just slow way down really quick? That's because your dad saw a highway patrol officer, right? He saw a highway patrol officer off to the side or under an overpass. He saw the highway patrol and pulled somebody else over. And your dad knows instinctively that the highway patrol officer could pull him over too. And so he went from 80 to 40 in about a second, because of what he believes in his gut, all of our actions are in some way controlled by what we believe. And so as Paul then has been establishing this idea that we are chosen, that we are heirs, that we have been rescued by Christ, that we have been redeemed through his shed blood on our behalf, that we are his children, that we are blessed, that there are no outsiders, that in Christ we are all inside. There's no Gentile or Jew. There's no division. We've all been brought together as stewards of this grace as he has pointed us to the fact that God has made us his servants, that we are loved by God, that we are empowered by God, that we are raised up and seated with Christ, as he's given us this overwhelming view of all these incredible theological truths, now as we get to chapter four, the midpoint in this book, he's gonna say, okay, now you know all this stuff. Now maybe, hopefully, you've been stirred by what you know. What are you gonna do with it? It's interesting because earlier in the book, he's already told us, hey, here's what I was given. I was given this grace, and here's what I did with it. I took the grace and I gave it to others. I didn't just sit on it, but I moved with it. There was action as a response to his own awe, and now throughout the rest of the book, he'll be calling us to live a life in response to these truths about who God is and who we are. So as we begin chapter four, it reads like this, even in the, just the first six verses. He says, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, remember Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, 
with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He says, I therefore urge you. He says, I'm, I'm compelling you. I'm calling upon you to walk in a different way. And he's going to talk about that more in the passage we'll study next week, the juxtaposition between walking in the futility of our minds the way we used to before we'd been redeemed and walking according or in worthiness of the, the calling to which we've been called. But this idea of walking isn't just a momentary step. It's not just a moment of faithfulness or a moment of faithful action. When he urges us to walk in this manner, what he's talking about is to live. It's, a, it's about an ongoing pursuit. He says, I, the Lord's prisoner, urge you to walk in a certain manner. Urge you to walk or to move or to live in an ongoing way. So as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I want you to understand that what we're going to see in the rest of the book is not a thing he's asking us to try. It's not a thing he's asking us to do once or twice on Christmas and Easter or whatever else. No, he's talking about what our daily life should look like. He says, in response to what you know, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, it's important to note that the worthiness there isn't about earning something. We've already established in Ephesians chapter two that we don't earn our salvation, that it's by grace we're saved, that we were broken and lost, we were separated from Christ, right? And he has brought us to him through his saving work, through his grace. So when he says, I want you to walk, live in an ongoing manner that's worthy of the calling, he's not saying I want you to prove your worth. He's not saying I want you to do something that God would deem worthy. What he's saying is I want you to walk in a lifestyle or a way of life that is in alignment or that is an accurate representation of all that you've heard about who God is. That walking in worthiness isn't about earning something. It's about living in alignment with who God is and who he's created us to be. So all the things we've already affirmed, that we're chosen and heirs and rescued and redeemed and united and stewards, all of those truths, because of God's saving work, we're called to walk worthy of those truths, walk in alignment. I, uh, I took it, I've been to Israel twice. The first time I went, we're going again, hopefully in November. I'm praying we're gonna go in November. We'll see what happens. But um, I, the first time I went to Israel, when we got to the Dead Sea, you know, they'll let you swim in the Dead Sea. And, uh, and that's a weird thing because the Dead Sea has got this really high salt content. So it's not really like swimming. It's more like bobbing in the Dead Sea. And it's, it's, very, uh, it, it's a weird experience. But we all put on our swimsuits and we went down to the area, the beachy, you can't, it's even, not even beachy, it's like rocks. But we went down to the Dead Sea. And when we got down there, it was me and a bunch of college students and a couple of other leaders. And we were just sort of experiencing the weirdness of the Dead Sea. And then we look over to our left and down there in that kind of rocky beachy area, there is a guy. Uh, and this, this guy is, he's just like a really big guy, right? So I don't, I don't have any idea how to quantify what really big means, but he's a big, big guy and he's, uh, very drunk and he's very loud and he's very, um, just kind of obnoxious. So he's harassing people around him. He's shouting at his kids. He is inebriated. He can barely stand up. He's kind of wobbling around and just kind of making a spectacle. It's very awkward. The worst part about that, because we've all seen dudes like that at the beach, right? You may, hopefully you've never been in that guy at the beach, but we've all seen guys like that at the beach. Here I am in Israel, and I see this guy, and I'm just thinking, oh, that guy is so gross, and then I take a, a deeper look, and I realize he's wearing an American flag Speedo, right, and I don't want you to get too much of a visual image here. Try not to picture this, right, but he's wearing an American flag Speedo, and I will tell you, it elevated my anger and my frustration. 
A moment earlier, I had just been kind of like, oh, what an obnoxious, drunk, like gross man. Now, he's wearing my flag. I mean, I guess maybe this is a good Memorial Day story. Probably not. Uh, But he's wearing my flag as as a swimsuit, and he's being this gross, obnoxious person. Now, I don't know whether he was American or not, but if he was, he was not representing all that America stands for in a way that's worthy of our country and our democracy, right? What he was doing was he was representing, if he's American, he was representing our country in a way that falls very short of who we are and what that flag stands for. If he wasn't an American, he was just insulting Americans, which, you know, whatever. But this is what he's talking about here. He's saying our lives have to be lived in an ongoing way in such a way that we are in alignment with Jesus and that we represent him in all worthiness, right? He says... I, the prisoner of Christ, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Worthy of the calling. Our action must follow our belief. And we have to live a life that is worthy of who Christ is. Worthy of all that he has done on our behalf. Worthy of our redemption, right? Not that we earn that, but that we represent it accurately. And then he gives us the first of what will be many examples that follow in the book of Ephesians. The first example of living a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called is a call to unity and humility. Here's what he says. This is his first demonstration of what this walk or this ongoing life should look like. He says here, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He says, I I want you to live a life that represents the Lord Jesus and God the Father and the spirit well. And the place he starts, this is important, the place he starts is not with purity. It's not with holiness. He doesn't say, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called, and so I want you to do a lot of good deeds, or I want you to learn a lot of Bible facts, or I want you to make sure that you go to church every time the doors are open, or whatever else. No, no, no. His first, his first call upon us, when he thinks about what it looks like to live a life or to walk the walk that's worthy of who God is and who he's called us to be, is to be united in humility. He gives us a description of a couple of things here. He, he, he calls us, firstly, here, to maintain unity. I got three main points this morning we'll see in the text. We're called to maintain unity, to sustain diversity, and to attain maturity. And we'll walk through those in turn. But first here, he talks about this idea of maintaining unity. He calls us to live a certain way, right? He says we should live a life that is humble and gentle and patient and has forbearance, or is bearing with one another. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance, or bearing with one another in love. These four characteristics, for the record, are not things that necessarily come easily to us, or our natural inclination. In fact, in the Greek world, the idea of uh, the word humility there could also be translated lowliness. That wasn't considered a virtue. In, in, in the time frame in which he wrote, uh, lowliness was something to be looked down upon. It wasn't until Jesus came on the scene and demonstrated a life of lowliness or a life of humility that that was ever considered a virtue by the Greek world, right? And it's not considered a virtue by, the, by those he's writing to. And he says to them, this is who you're to be. You want to walk in worthiness to the calling you've been called? Walk in humility, which is the idea of recognizing the value of other people over yourself, to be humble and lowly. He says not only that, he says we should be gentle, which is the idea of being accessible and being kind, gentleness and lowliness. He says we need to be patient and forbearing with one another. What's that? Well, it's recognizing not only the value of other people, 
but putting up with and bearing up with their weaknesses. Sooner or later, you spend time in community with other people, and they're going to prove to you that they're broken too. You're broken, I'm broken, and if we spend enough time together, it won't even take minutes I'll prove to you that I'm a flawed human being. If you're gonna be in harmony with me and I'm gonna be in harmony with you, it will only happen because of this recipe, that I value you more than I value myself. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Now, it's, it's worth noting that these aren't just random character traits that he chooses. These are traits that in some part, Jesus uses himself to describe his own heart. If you were to turn with me to Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, you don't have to turn there, but, but I'll put it on the screens and we'll read it. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, we have the only place where Jesus talks about his own heart. There are lots of places in scripture where t- Jesus talks about his duty, where he talks about his responsibility, where he talks about his relationships, where he even talks about his mission. The only place in scripture where Jesus talks about his own heart, here's how he describes it. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I, Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When Jesus is given the opportunity to describe his own heart, he doesn't say, I am joyful. He doesn't say, I am generous. He doesn't say, I am glorious. He doesn't say, I am magnificent. He doesn't say, I am powerful. He says, I, in my heart, am gentle and lowly, I'm humble, lowly, and gentle, and patient, and kind. And, and so what is, what's Paul calling us to here? He says, walk this life that's worthy of the calling. And the first thing I would want to point you towards is not doing good deeds, but living a life the way Jesus lived, having the heart of Jesus to be humble, patient, and, and to see that love is sort of the thing that wraps this all together. You know, one of our, one of our pillars as a church Uh, The second pillar is revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity. And the idea there of humble solidarity is is not the idea of, of a false humility where we go, oh, woe is me, I'm nobody, I'm no good, I'm nothing. We recognize that we are chosen and calling. We're gifted, we're redeemed. We're, we're secured. We are all the things that we've seen affirmed in the first three chapters. It's not that we are nothing. It's that we recognize the intrinsic value of other people and that if it weren't for the saving work of Christ, we ourselves would still be lost. There is a solidarity, a humble solidarity with our fellow man and woman, no matter what race, no matter what skin color, no matter what language, no matter what economic class, no matter what country. There is a humble solidarity we have with every other man which is rooted in the idea that we are all desperate for redemption and only saved by his grace. He says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling and he starts by saying, live a life that looks like Jesus and by that I mean humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another and all of that happening in love. You know, so often what divides us are our petty squabbles, our jealousy, our judgment of one another, our division, our pride, our competition, All of these things, for what it's worth, paint a false picture of Jesus. When we are arrogant, when we're judgmental, when we're proud, when we're divisive, 
We paint a false picture of Jesus, and when we paint the false picture of Jesus, we're essentially blaspheming, right? That's what this is talking about. I was thinking about a way to, to sort of picture, think about, uh, think about so much of our culture and so much of our world is driven by arrogance. It's driven by self-preservation. It's driven by looking out for number one. It's looking at taking whatever advantage I can get to promote my own brand or my own self. It's what social media is rooted around. This idea of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance for one another in love is absolutely countercultural. It's absolutely the opposite of what our culture says you should be. Our culture says, make the most of who you are and lift yourself up and fight for yourself and defend yourself. And there are even people who would claim to be followers of Christ who do not put Christ on. And in that way, they are blaspheming by misrepresenting the character and heart of Christ. I was thinking about uh, Survivor television show. I'm a big Survivor fan. Think about Survivor, and then I want you to put that next to the British baking show, the great British baking show. Have you seen both of those? If you haven't, I can't believe you've been in quarantine for two and a half months and you haven't seen every episode of both of those shows, but uh, Survivor, of which I'm a big fan, is all about lying and cheating and backbiting and doing whatever you got to do to be the sole survivor at the end. You make these alliances and you break them and you get idols to protect yourself and preserve your own, and it's all about self-preservation, Right? That isn't the way of Jesus. That isn't a a way to build unity. You take the British Baking Show, on the other hand, and you've got 12 contestants there, and they're all just like, well, I'm a home baker. I I do my own puff pastry. It's not very good. I I can't do a British accent. But but what's incredible about the British Baking Show is that when one of them gets voted off, they all cry and hug. They all wrap around. When somebody forgets to put their jello in the freezer, they go, oh, would you like some of my jello? Please take a bit of mine. I've got some. There's my terrible British accent, whatever. But what's the difference? There is no fight. There is no pride. There is no arrogance. On the British Baking Show, they're essentially working for the good of everyone else. And yeah, somebody wants to win on that show just like anybody else, but they do it in solidarity with one another, with a humble recognition that they're all just home bakers doing their best. On Survivor, it's cutthroat. Isn't it sad that so often, when it comes to the body of Christ, When it comes to the church, we tend to be a little bit more like Survivor, driven by our own preferences, driven by our own ideals, driven by what we want and what we think has value to the exclusion of other people, as opposed to taking on the heart of Christ, who himself refers to himself as humble and lowly. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. These are a description of Jesus, and we have the opportunity to represent him well. Let's go on and see what else it says here. He says, we should with all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, be eager, verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now this is interesting because we understand that the unity we have, we already saw that earlier in Ephesians, the unity we have is the work of the spirit. It's not something we do. It's not something we strive for. It's not something that we have to make happen. We are united. There is no Gentile. There is no Jew. There is no outsider. We are one new man. We are one family. That is the Spirit's work through Christ. But he calls us here to be eager or anxious to maintain it. What's that ta- what kind of maintenance is necessary? Well, the maintenance that's necessary is the visibility of it. He's calling us to put that unity on display. Are we united, brothers and sisters, around the world who are followers of Jesus? We absolutely are. But what we have to be eager to maintain is the visible representation of that unity because most of the time when the world looks at the church, and I'm not just talking about our church, 
But most of the time when the, when the world looks at followers of Jesus, they see us fighting. They see us divided. They see us biting at each other. They see us breaking apart over all kinds of petty differences and squabbles. So why do we have to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, maintain a thing that is because of God's work? We have to maintain it because otherwise we represent something false. We become blasphemous even in our disharmony, right? He says we have to be eager to maintain it. Why? Because, he says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We put these signs up on the outside of our church building a a year and a half ago or so. We used to have just pictures of of things going on in our church outside. And it was cool. It was cool to see pictures of different things that had happened inside our body. But as we started to look at that as a team, we thought, you know, it's important for us to get a broader perspective of what the body of Christ looks like. It isn't just us doing our Bible studies and us doing our weddings and us doing our baptisms and us doing our... It can be easy to turn sort of that internal eye. And so what we did is we put up these posters that actually have very few pictures of Fullerton Free and, and instead have pictures of the body of Christ at work in our, in our country and in our city and around the world. Why? To open up our perspective to the fact that there's this Trinitarian thought that no matter who you are or where you come from, if you're a follower of Christ, we have unity together. We have one spirit that unites us. We have one faith, a, a saving faith in Christ by his grace. So it talks here about the spirit. It talks about the Lord Jesus and our faith in him, the one baptism we have in solidarity with his death and resurrection. There's not a bunch of different baptisms. There's not a bunch of different faith. It's all the same faith. We're united in that. The same God and Father of all who is in all and through all and over all, right? He's wanting to remind us that we're a family, that we're meant to be united. He says the only way that will happen is in the soil of humility, gentleness, patience, and love. We look like Jesus, and then we're eager to maintain the visible representation of what is true of us because of the Spirit's work. We maintain it visibly because of what he has already done. That's what that means to maintain that spirit of unity in the bond of peace. Now, not only does he call us in this to maintain a spirit of unity, but he also calls us to sustain diversity. I want you to note here in verse seven the way it switches from all of us to each of us, right? He's been talking about the fact that there's one spirit and one Lord, one father, right? Now in verse seven, he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's talking about us as a collective for a second, and now he's going to drill down a little bit smaller, and he's going to talk about the fact that even though we are maintaining unity in the Spirit, that there is a sustaining diversity that happens in us. That even though we're united as a body, each one of us is a little bit different, and God has wired us that way with different gifts. He says in 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. There's a different measure of the gifting of God according to his grace. He says, therefore, it says in verse 8, and here he's quoting from Psalm 68. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So he's already talked about this idea that we are meant to be united, maintain that unity. Now he says Jesus in his grace has given us all various gifts. 
right? He's given us all various gifts based on his dissension and ascension. I will tell you that there is some theological debate over this section. When, uh, when Paul here quotes out of Psalm 68, he changes one of the words. So in his quote, he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Uh, in Psalm 68, 18, it actually says he receives gifts from men. And so people have kind of gone back and forth about, did he make a mistake here? Did Paul just remember it wrong? I think Paul is pointing at the Psalm, which was about the king taking his throne in Zion and having conquered all of his foes, distributing the plunder, right? And receiving plunder as a result of his, re- uh, of his victory. He's taking that and he's saying, we've all seen that in Psalm 68, that the king gets all the spoil, and he says, Jesus descended to the earth and he has ascended not to abandon the earth, but to fill the earth. In fact, it says that here. He says in seven and eight, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. What Paul is affirming is that he has given each of us various gifts. Each and every one of us are wired differently. We're built uniquely by the Spirit of God and through the work of Christ. He has ascended and by his power he's distributed these gifts to us not in order to, that he would vacate the world. Even though he's ascended, he hasn't vacated the world but he is filling the world. That's what Barclay says, one of the theologians I looked at this week. This dissension and ascension, there's even some debate about whether this is a reference to the passage in 1 Peter where uh, presumably some believe that Jesus descended into Hades and preached to those who were in chains there. Uh, This I don't think is referring to the 1 Peter passage. I think this reference is just talking about the fact that Jesus came in humility and in lowliness and in all gentleness. He descended and has now ascended in order to fill all the earth through the distribution of his gifts, right? That he's given us these gifts. We could find reference to that in other of Paul's writings. We could see it in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There in Philippians chapter 2, he talks about the fact that Jesus was lowly and humble, that he came to us, that he descended. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says if he, if he has ascended, it also shows that he descended and he did that in order to fill us with various gifts. Now what it's talking about here in the distribution of these various gifts is not, um, he's, he's wanting to identify the fact that the church is not meant to be a, a church of uniformity. We're all not supposed to look the same. It's not that we're all lock, stock, and barrel exactly. It's not uniformity. It's also not un, unanimity. I know that's a tricky word, right? Unanimity. It's not that we all think the same things at all times, right? It's not, he's not talking about unanimity or uniformity. He's talking about unity in our diversity, Unity in our diversity. We might have different opinions. We might think about things differently. We certainly look different. We come from different backgrounds. We have all different kinds of experiences, but we're united. There isn't a single family dinner at the McWaters house where we have uniformity, ever, right? At our dinner table, there's never uniformity. Nobody's ever eating the exact same thing. They're never thinking the exact same thing. They don't ever look exactly. We make different various levels of mess, right? 
There's no uniformity at the, at the McWaters dinner table. There's also no unanimity because nobody can agree on which parts of the dinner we like and which parts of the dinner we don't like and which parts of the dinner we would have cooked differently. No one can agree necessarily, but you know what we have at every McWaters dinner? Unity. Despite the fact that we're not uniform, despite the fact that we're not unanimous in our opinions, we're united around that table. We are a family. We are bonded together in spite of our differences. He's saying we are meant to be united. The first way in which to walk in worthiness of the calling we've been called is to be united in humility and gentleness and patience with one another, forbearance in love so that we put Jesus on display. There is one spirit and one father and one faith. First Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13 says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There are some 20 different uh, spiritual gifts listed in the Bible, and I will tell you that it is not my opinion that that's an exhaustive list. I think sometimes people will go, well, which one of these 20 gifts do you have? And they're not all listed here. There are just a few, four or five listed here. There are 20 in total that are listed, but I don't believe that the, the lists of the gifts of the Spirit in the Scripture are even exhaustive. I think there are more gifts than that, right? It's a question of recognizing who you are and how God has wired you and what that looks like. Now, he, he does give us four or five here, and I say four or five because some people will debate about whether or not shepherd teacher is one title, one gifting and calling, or whether it's two, shepherd and teacher. Um, I, I'm actually not sure which way to go on that. I, I kind of think it's a little bit of both. I think there are shepherd teachers. In fact, I think that's my calling, and I think that's my gifting. I think that's what in the world I'm doing here today shepherding and teaching at the same time. I think there's a gifting. I do also think there are people who are called to teach uh, in certain contexts that maybe aren't shepherds necessarily. Um, I, I would probably say I think all shepherds in one way or another are, are called to teach. Certainly all elders are. So we, I don't want to get in the nitty gritty of it, but he gives us a list of just a couple of these gifts. God has given to each of us. Remember that Jesus by his grace and his ascension is given to each of us. Everybody has gifts. He highlights a couple here for a specific purpose. So let's read on after verse 10. He says, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, right? He gives us a couple of, of lists here because he's, he's telling us, hey, we each have gifts, We each have a call to be ministers, and yet there is a certain function. The apostles are those who gave us the scripture. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus. I don't believe that there is an ongoing apostleship. I don't think that's an ongoing gift. We can argue about it, but let's be uh, united in our our diversity. I don't believe that apostleship is still a a calling or a gift. I don't think it's an office that's still being appointed today. I think it was given to a select group of people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus, and because of them, we have the scriptures. So I think when he affirms here the apostles, I think he's talking about what we have in the revealed word of God. But he goes on to talk about prophets, those who declare the truth. He talks about evangelists, those who articulate the gospel. And he talks about shepherds, those who care for the flock of God. And teachers, those who communicate the word of God, each of those specific five that he gives us there, or four, are given what? He tells us why he tells us those four or five. He gives those to us because they are for a specific purpose, which is the equipping of the saints for works of ministry, works of service. The apostles and the prophets, the evangelists and the shepherd teachers are given to, that that word equipping there means the mending or the finishing. You'd use it when you're talking about your fishing nets. 
It's meant to shore up the places where there are gaps. Each of us have been given gifts. Each of us have been empowered and gifted by the Holy Spirit to have an impact in our individual circles, right? We've been talking about that over the last few weeks. That as followers of Jesus, we are not only believing in the priesthood of the saints, the idea that each of us have access to God through the shed blood of Christ. We don't just believe in the priesthood of the believer. We also believe in the universal ministry of the believer, That every believer is a steward of the grace of God. Every believer is meant to be an ambassador of Christ. And we've been gifted by Christ toward that end, but there is still some shoring up. There's still some equipping. There's still some mending or finishing work. And that finishing work, according to Paul in Ephesians 4, happens in the local church. It happens through shepherd teachers. It happens through prophets. It happens through evangelists. That none of us are finished, and none of us ever will be finished. That we need shepherds. We need prophets, we need evangelists, we need God's word revealed through, through the apostles to continue to sort of fill in the gaps. But listen to me, what he's saying here is we must be united in our differences and in our diversity. All people have gifts, there is a mending that still has to be done and it happens through local body. It happens through the local body of Christ, through apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. But all saints are equipped for ministry. All saints are equipped for bodybuilding, if you will. And he says here in verse 12 that the work of the church or the work of vocational leadership, like myself, shepherd teachers like me, is to fill in the gaps, to fill in the holes, and to equip the body, every member of it, for works of ministry. Can I tell you, no matter who you are or where you come from, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a minister. You are a priest yourself. And what we're doing here this morning, in some sense, is equipping you for that ongoing work. Not only are we called to maintain unity, not only are we called to sustain diversity, but lastly, in this last section, we're called to attain, to attain, I don't want to mess it up, attain maturity. Let's look at this. What's this equipping for the saints? The building up the body, look at 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This last part about attaining, attaining maturity, again, the, the spirit makes us united and we just have to make that visible in our humility and our gentleness. We have these gifts that Christ has given us through his descension and ascension. And the church is here, the, the, the local church is here to equip us for works of ministry because we're all meant to be ministers. But the goal of that ongoing work is the bodybuilding of the body of Christ, which is us. The body of Christ is alive. It's alive in us and it grows. Think about that for a second. The body of Christ grows. And I don't just mean more people come to church. When we think about church growth, most of the time we're thinking about numbers in the seats. That's not what Paul's talking about here. If anything, that kind of church growth is a byproduct of this kind of church growth. But what he's saying is that over time we attain the maturity that we were redeemed for, that we begin to look more and more like Jesus in his fullness, that we attain mature manhood, that we grow up into the head who is Christ, right? He says, we don't want to be tossed about like children. If you're, a, if you're a kid this morning and you got the coloring sheet, it has a picture of a sailing ship. And it says, we don't want to be tossed about by deceitful schemes and winds of cunning and whatever else, right? 
We don't want to be misled by all this other falsehood, this stuff that says you got to look out for yourself. The most important thing is defending yourself. Never say you're wrong. Never admit you made a mistake. Never let anybody see you flawed. No, instead, in humility and gentleness and lowliness, embrace the heart of Christ and be united with one another in our diverse gifts for a uniform effort that involves every part of the body so that as we grow up into Christ, we are sustained and grow. The body grows the body. Look at what it says here. He says how how this growth happens. Look at 15. He says, instead of being tossed around by deceitful schemes and carried away by every wind of doctrine, he says, rather, here's here's how we grow. Instead of being tossed about, he says, rather, Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Speaking the truth in love, and I'm, I'm almost finished this morning, but I, that, that's an interesting verse there because I've always heard that verse re- used as kind of a defense for here's why I need to say some really mean things to you, right? The Bible says I'm supposed to speak the truth in love, and Garrett, uh, because I need to speak the truth in love, I gotta tell you, I really have a problem with this or that or whatever. Most of the time we use this in defense of our lack of humility, of our lack of gentleness, of our lack of patience and forbearance in love. Most of the time, when we talk about speaking the truth in love, we're using it as a justification to say things that are cruel. Can I tell you that in the original language, there is no hint of the idea of speaking. There's nothing in that word that talks about communication. It's all about being truth. In fact, a better translation here would be, rather than being tossed about by human cunning and craftiness, rather, truthing in love is what the verb is. Truthing, what's the idea there? The idea is being honest, being true. Will that include true speech? It absolutely will. But the idea here is that in humility and gentleness and lowliness, recognizing we've all been gifted, but we also need all of us a little bit of equipping, that if we'll just be honest about who we are, that's when we grow. If we will, if we will truth in love, if we will be truthing in love, being the truth, being an honest revelation of who we are and who God is, all these things that Paul has pointed us to for the sake of our awe. It's not about speaking the truth exclusively, but it's more about living a true life, living the truth of Christ, revealing truth in the way we interact with one another. When we truth in love, when we truth in love, look at what happens. We grow in every way, every way. That includes emotional, includes spiritual, includes physical. We, as the body of Christ, grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body, he is central and essential, he sustains us, as John 15 says, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, that's all of our various gifts, it's all of our different talents, it's all the way we're wired, some introvert, some extrovert, some, you know, we're all, we're all wired different. But from whom, verse 16, that's Jesus, from whom, Jesus, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. How does the body grow? The body grows when the body works. This is a thing we all kind of essentially know, isn't it? The body grows when we exercise it. And if we only exercise one part, that one part will grow to the detriment of the rest. What this is saying is that supplied by Christ, who is the head, we set aside the deceitful schemes and we allow ourselves to truth in love, to be truth in love, to just be honest about who we are in love, that what happens is the whole body starts to work the way it was equipped to work. It starts to be exercised, and then by the, the, the power of God and the unity of the Spirit, the body working grows the body. 
That's what that text says. The body, work and grows the body. So why have I been emphasizing so strongly over the last three weeks the idea that this, this is not the church, that this thing we're doing on Sunday morning is not church, but we are the church. It's a body of people to whom we belong, and every one of us is a steward and a minister. Identify your circle. Be interceding for your circle. Now I'm talking about the idea of figuring out who Christ has equipped you to be as a part of the body and exercising that and investing in those that are nearest to you. Why? Because it's only in the exercise of the whole body, in the power of Christ, every joint and tendon that's been equipped, that's all of us in our diversity, being united in exercise, that the body grows. And don't miss the fact that the body grows one way. It's at the beginning of this section and at the end. The body grows in love. Don't miss it. Verse 16. He says, when each part is working properly, It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There is this upbuilding in which when we will be humble and lowly and gentle and kind in love, the body will start to do what it's designed to do. And then we will walk in a manner worthy of our calling, representing Christ accurately because that's what he was like and that's what he descended and ascended for the body begins to function the way it was designed to function. And in that exercise of our bodiness, in that truthing in love, the body grows in every way. In love. Our love grows as well. This is a lot. I have raced past it and I'm long as it is. But don't miss the importance here of in light of what we know, living a life that's worthy of who Christ is and who he has made us to be. This unity is the way in which we display to the world that we aren't like the world. That there is something unblushingly odd about us that will draw the rest of the world in unforced appeal when we are revolutionarily kind in humble solidarity. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would take your word like a seed and you plant it in us. There is so much in the text that I have raced past and so much that we could spend months just studying this So I pray that you draw your people back to your word for deeper investigation and deeper study. But even in the time we've had this morning, there are some essential things. The call to maintain unity and to sustain our individual diversity and to attain this maturity where the body grows the body because we are in you, Lord Jesus, our head. That our love will grow when our body is exercising as we've been equipped. God, help us to... Not only know that truth, but to walk in that truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.